3: From KQED.
2: We're going to turn our attention now to a plan to jumpstart California immunizations. California health officials responding to criticism over the slow rollout of the vaccine against the coronavirus have loosen restrictions on who will get the first doses in an attempt to streamline the process governor Newsom's ambitious goal announced last week is to vaccinate 1 million people in 10 days and joining us now to discuss the new approach is Barbara fader Ostrov who is contributing writer reporting on medicine and health policy for Cal matters and welcome back to forum Barbara fader Ostrov good to have you good
1: morning thank you good morning to you
2: and uh, let's just talk about first uh, what the governor's plan is going to possibly do. I mean, there's been a great deal of concern, obviously, about the vaccines not being available and just the real holdup on the vaccines. I think for lack of a better word here, they've been quite slow in the rollout, especially for healthcare workers and nursing home residents. Uh, what do you see ahead as far as uh, what Governor Newsom's trying to get through here with $100 million?
1: Well it's it's really a race against time now with vaccinations because the wave of cases and hospitalizations that we expected after the holidays is really now upon us. Nearly the entire nearly the entire state is on lockdown and hospitals are just completely overwhelmed in some parts of the state. You know, um, it's been slow. You know, we plan to vaccinate 1 million people in 10 days. Officials have loosened the criteria for who can be vaccinated, especially if there are extra doses available. Just get the vaccine into arms. And California ranks 42nd among states in terms of the population, the percentage of the population that has been vaccinated. We've only immunized about 1.5% of our population, and that's less than a number of other states, even big population states like Texas. And to date, let's see, um, we have uh, given out about 734,000 doses uh, statewide, but that's only about one-third of the roughly 2.2 2 million vaccine doses that have been shipped to local health departments and healthcare systems.
2: Well, it's been very slow indeed, and there's a great deal of concern about it. And I want to bring uh, Dr. Grace Lee into this uh, discussion. Grace Lee is Professor of Pediatrics and Infectious Diseases at Stanford, and welcome to the program, Dr. Lee.
3: Thanks very much for having me.
2: I guess uh, I'd like to begin by asking you about essentially uh, what we are concerned with the variant now in terms of the numbers. Uh, Dr. Fauci uh, said that uh, RNA viruses make a living out of uh, mutating. The more you replicate, the more you mutate. And there's a great deal of concern that the numbers are going up because of this more transmissible variant of the virus.
3: I mean, yes, we're, at a different point in this pandemic where it really is a race against time. Uh, Our goal is to try and make sure that we get vaccines into arms as quickly as possible. Um, And recognizing that uh, earlier on, we had uh, been so grateful for the amount of investment that had gone into vaccine development, uh, but the infrastructure needed to to deploy rapidly this um, sort of complex immunization delivery system that requires two doses, Um, And in some instances, um, storage and handling conditions that are quite challenging. um, I think that has hampered our ability to deliver as quickly as we would like. Um, I am, you know, uh, hopeful that in the coming weeks that we can accelerate our progress. Uh, The most important thing I would say is that we can't have any doses wasted, and nor can we have, um, you know, doses, nor do we want doses sitting on shelves. So, um, you know, in conjunction uh, with our public health colleagues, you know, who we appreciate their leadership on this. Uh, uh, trying to deploy and um, get vaccines into arms as quickly as possible is in all of our interest. And
2: what about testing? And I mentioned testing because there's been a lot of reporting about uh, the warning out from the FDA on uh, curative tests uh, that were essentially originated, uh, that, that, that did originate in Silicon Valley. These are these oral swab tests that are being used in LA at 10 of the drive-through sites, and there are a lot of false negatives and there are concerns raised about this. I wonder, you see this affecting the accuracy of infection rates, and if so, what kind of impact?
3: So, you know, it depends on the purpose of testing. Um, From a diagnostic perspective, and we're working in the hospital setting, uh, we certainly rely on our gold standard PCR tests in order to assess whether or not a person is infected or infectious. Uh, And those are the tests that we need to be able to provide optimal clinical care for a patient and manage those patients. Um, However, you know, I do think that there is an important role for um, testing from a screening perspective. Uh, It is not feasible to um, rely only on, um, I think, gold standard testing, which we need to use in a clinical setting, uh, for what we need to get done from a public health perspective. It really needs to be multiple approaches. It can't be a linear approach where we need to actually just be able to use all tests available, uh, recognizing their limitations, but also ensuring that we're using them in settings where we actually can have an impact. And I'll give you an example. We have in some communities an extremely high prevalence rates of infection when we're going in. Um, and that is where those tests actually can be incredibly helpful in order to rapidly identify uh, when an individual is positive so that we can prevent transmission in the community. Um, in low prevalence communities, you know, the uh, benefit risk calculation of using certain diagnostic tests differs. So I would say it depends on the pre-test probability of um, COVID-19 infection in the community, the test characteristics, and then just being able to, you know, use all the tools that we have at our disposal in order to reduce transmission and also um, prevent infection in communities.
2: We're talking about the race against time here with respect to getting shots, and we do want to hear from you. And a lot of questions I know you as listeners have, and also you may want to simply weigh in here. You can give us a call now at our toll-free number. It's 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or are going in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email us, forum at kqed.org. I'm Michael Krasny. Support
0: for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
2: This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about California's efforts to speed up the delivery of a coronavirus vaccine with Grace Lee, who's professor of pediatrics and infectious diseases at Stanford University, and Barbara Fader Ostrov, who is contributing writer reporting on medicine and health policy for Cal Matters. And we do want to hear your questions and concerns about the vaccine rollout. You can give us a call now toll-free number to reach us 866-733-6786 that's 866-733-6786 or get in touch on twitter and facebook we're at kqed forum or email any questions you may have to forum at kqed.org and dr lee let me go back to you just to ask about your response to these new guidelines on travel here in california we're talking about a essentially a shorter quarantine from 14 to 10 days for non-essential out-of-state travelers it's still Uh, strongly urged in terms of traveling not to enter the state. Uh, Californians uh, should of course uh, consider non-essential travel not to be high on their list and look at about 120 miles from home within the state uh, as the parameters here and avoid other states. So uh, how does this help or ameliorate the kind of infectious rates that are skyrocketing?
3: Um, Well, you know, again, I think we're going to have to use all the tools at our disposal um, to mitigate community transmission. We're at a critical point in this pandemic where our hospital beds are quite full um, and our staffing, you know, is at its max right now. And at the same time, we're all trying to roll out vaccination programs. Uh, so, you know, I see the um, recommendations as a uh, one of the tools in the toolkit to be able to mitigate spread. It alone won't do it all. Uh, again, we're going to need to rely on vaccines. Um, we're going to need to rely on robust testing programs. And I should emphasize that the importance of um, testing is uh, one of not only just making sure we have accurate tests, but also that we have access to tests and that those tests are affordable um, and we're able to get it into communities that need them. So, um, I do think that, again, with all of these tools at our disposal, I, my hope is that we can together stop the spread and at least be able to ensure that we have the healthcare capacity to care for all of our patients. Um, better yet for us to be in a place where we can actually um, uh, go back to a new normal.
2: And let me bring a caller on. Lisa joins us. Lisa, welcome. You're on the air.
3: Hi. Um,
1: my question is, is uh, there's a lot of us who would like to get vaccinated, but we're not in the high-risk group. Um, And in order to not waste a vaccine, how come you don't have a list of people uh, that can sign up? And then if you have any sort of leftover vaccine at any given time, that you could then call on them and get vaccinated.
2: Uh, Let me go to you, Barbara fader Barbara?
1: I think, yes, I'm here. Um, I think the issue is that that we're still trying to work our way through um, the, quote, phase 1A uh, healthcare workers and uh, people and staff in nursing homes. So we've been hearing from health home health aides, doctors in private practice, dentists, uh, pharmacists, people who are in the first you know phase of healthcare workers but have not been able to get access to vaccines. The system, if you're not a hospital, you know, like someone with a hospital ID badge, it's been really difficult to get. So at you know the community advisory meetings. People are asking, you know, where am I on the list? I'm a healthcare worker. So, you know, important uh, personal caregivers, uh, people in the healthcare system that aren't attached to hospitals are really having their own issues getting vaccines. And those people are higher on the priority list. I do think we are going to get to a point where the kind of system the caller is talking about will definitely be available, but we're not there yet.
2: Yeah, there's a listener named Tomeo who emails us. Bring it on. As a frontline worker, I am so ready. And I know you have to leave, Dr. Lee, but I want you to respond, if you could, uh, with the little time left to a listener's question. Holly asks, I've heard no information on how effective the first dose of vaccine is and how long it takes to become effective and how long after the second dose it becomes fully effective.
3: So in the clinical trials, uh, we have seen that actually, um, number one, that uh, of those who are in the clinical trials and received the vaccine, um, either the Pfizer or Moderna, that somewhere around day 10, we're starting to see a difference in the curves um, in that individuals who received the placebo vaccine continue to um, be at risk for infection, whereas you can see the curve starting to bend around day 10 for both vaccines. So there clearly is some efficacy after dose one that we're seeing. Um, In terms of uh, uh, what those true efficacy rates are, it's hard to tell because there was only either three weeks or four weeks in between those two doses um, before the second dose was received. And um, those rates, uh, efficacy rates are as high as 95%. Um, There is some benefit, but, you know, we're still recommending that um, individuals receive two doses um, and uh, hopefully as on time as possible in order to optimally protect the population. That said, I did want to just... Maybe uh, uh, make a comment that uh, that uh, you know. Uh, president-elect uh, joe biden had mentioned uh, the importance of making sure we don't leave vaccines in the freezer um, and would want to you know really just echo that point that it's uh we're hoping that the supply chain really is able to uh, backfill and that we should continue to make sure we're aggressively vaccinating and quickly vaccinating as much of the population as possible within the um, phases one a 1 b and 1c um we don't want vaccines sitting on shelves so uh, you know uh, it's not a question of um not getting two doses it's really just a question of getting as many doses into arms as possible and ensuring that people receive two dose protection
2: yeah i appreciate that comment especially we should mention eight democratic governors have demanded federal health officials release doses of COVID 19. something's holding them back i would presume if there has to be that kind of insistence from uh, top executives in eight states Dr. Lee, good to have you with us, and I appreciate your being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Grace Lee, again, is Professor of Pediatrics and Infectious Diseases at Stanford. We're talking about California's efforts to speed up the delivery of a coronavirus vaccine, and Barbara Fader-Ostrov with us from Cal Matters. and Eric is our next caller. Eric, you're on the air.
0: Yeah, thank you for taking my call. My question, so I'm a first responder, and my question is um, regarding to some apprehensiveness. I've heard from um, others and my line of work about taking the vaccine. And it seems specifically due to a lack of information being disseminated to us about its safety and uh, what the amount of research had been done um, prior to approving this. So um, my question is, and I'll take it off the air, is where can I direct people to access that information? And is there like a quick, you know, one sheet that we can, uh, we can get out to people?
2: right, thank, uh, thank you for the question, Eric. and Barbara, I'm going to go back to you uh, some information particularly on safety of the vaccine. What would be most uh, what would you want to highlight?
1: Yeah, um, so the state really needs to roll out its public information campaign. They're in the process of doing that. They're going to have all kinds of you know public service ads, information sheets, et cetera. Um, to talk about the, you know, effectiveness of the vaccine, the safety of the vaccine, the many um, uh, levels of review it's gone through, including uh, the state's own safety panel of experts, which has, you know, approved this vaccine as safe based on the information they've gotten. And, you know, a lot of it is going to be about combating misinformation online for now a really great place you can go is covid19.ca.gov and you will be able to get all the latest vaccine information you can also go on to the cdc website or Google CDC COVID vaccine, and you will get to fact sheets about the vaccine that may be helpful. Uh, But the state is planning a big information campaign and it's just about to start rolling that out.
2: And a question, uh, Barbara uh, Fedorostov from a listener named Larry, who says, my wife's parents in Denver are 70 and have already received the vaccine through a local pharmacy. My mother here in California is 75 and we have no idea when or how she will get the vaccine. Can you say how people in the next 1B phase should expect to be notified or go about getting vaccinated? Why are we not hearing regular messaging from local health officials or the governor about rollout plans? And I think uh, that's that's a very central question in many people's minds.
1: Absolutely. Um, so yeah, individuals 75 and older are in the next phase, uh, the first part of what they call phase 1b, along with, um, you know, teachers, child care, emergency workers, and, and food and agriculture workers. And it you know, if you live in California, it can be kind of heartbreaking to see your family members uh, in other states getting vaccinated, like in Florida, Colorado, but not here yet. And the issue is that counties uh, in conjunction with the state are still trying to figure out their logistics plans once you go beyond the hospital setting it was pretty easy to figure out who's a hospital worker and who is a nursing home person these are kind of quote captive populations it's a much bigger group in phase 1b and so there's a whole bunch of systems that are going to be rolling out you know pharmacies are going to be vaccinators uh, your your personal doctor is Going to notify people over seven, you know, over seventy, uh, seventy-five and older. Um, so you will be starting to get calls to come in. Um, but you know, basically, the vaccination sites for larger groups, the next phase, are still being determined. It's still a work in progress.
2: Well, you kind of indicated the fact that the counties have some leeway here in prioritizing uh, on the basis of occupations or high-risk people, and there are a lot of big questions that still loom in people's minds. I mean. How do the counties decide who over 74 gets the first shots? How do they communicate to them? Uh, What documents are going to be required for eligibility? Who's responsible for uh, assuring people don't jump in the line and all those sorts of things? I mean, uh, and also, you know, how to get blind or disabled people to the vaccination sites. I think uh, we need a lot of clarity here. Let me bring some callers on and uh, let me go to NAPA next and welcome Arena. Arena, you're on. Good morning.
1: Yeah, I'm Irina from Napa and I have a personal question that I could propagate. Um, I like to know when would I get my vaccination? I'm, uh, 66 years old and I have, um, um, I'm COVID morbid, I think how you call it, uh, secondary conditions that could affect me. So when would I be getting my vaccination? What year?
2: <laughs> She's up in up. Napa, All right, thank like, you for uh, the question, Irina. She's up in Napa. I don't know if you have an answer for Barbara fader but...
1: Yeah, so um, phase 1C is uh, people between... Um, Uh, 50 and 64 years of age, I think the color is 64. Um, But it may be that as counties work through their various vaccine levels, they will prioritize people not just by age, but age and chronic condition, you know, a lung condition, Uh, you know, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, things that, you know, really put you more at risk if you do get infected. Um, So basically, in phase 1C, uh, and I think phase 1B, tier 2, Anybody who is 65 and up can get it, uh, but uh, depending on your county, you may have a chance of getting it if you also have a chronic condition as we move from, like, the second part of Phase 1B into the first part of Phase 1C. And, you know, I, I acknowledge that this is incredibly complicated for you know, just everyday people, especially in the absence of messaging from the state at this point, um, it's it's hard for you know, me to keep up with and it's complicated and I think that there needs to be a better job in just communicating where people fall and I do think that's coming.
2: Yeah, well, let's hope it's coming. Uh, But here's a key question from a listener named Samuel who emails us. uh, I keep hearing that the rollout of the vaccine is not going well, but haven't heard specifics about why. Can you talk about exactly what the holdup has been in California?
1: Sure. Um, well, first of all, California is an incredibly large state, land-wise. It has a huge population. It has fifty-eight counties, uh, all with varying perspectives on on how to, you know, do the vaccine. And there's no uh, central kind of mechanism or system to roll out the vaccine, it's different in every county. So um, the other thing is that there have been some issues with state uh, computer systems where they have, you know, information about the number of vaccines. You know, the vaccine is getting shipped, but uh, the other thing that is complicating it is that there are very specific conditions under which each vaccine needs to be stored. And in some places without the appropriate super cold storage, that can slow things down as well.
2: And here's Eli joining us from up in Sebastopol. Eli, welcome. You're on the air. Good morning.
0: Michael, thanks for taking my call. You're a true mensch. Thank you for all your years of service of propagating real information to the people. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. My question for your guest is, Is there any validity to shedding with these new vaccines in the case where, let's say, you get vaccinated and you may actually be putting a small risk to people in your family or your co-workers by shedding the virus for a certain period of time after you're vaccinated?
2: Well, we had to say goodbye to Dr. Lieber. Can you help us here, Barbara?
1: Sure. Um, Yeah, I know this is a concern that's often brought up, uh, particularly by people who are hesitant or opposed to vaccines. There's no evidence of shedding being a problem in terms of infecting other people. Um, It's just not the way this vaccine is constructed.
2: And Let me thank Eli for the kind remarks and go on to a question from Rohan, who says, why can't California use the DMV database or the Amber Alert to identify potential recipients?
1: I think there's issues with privacy there. Um, so yeah, the th- part of the issue is that we have, uh, you know, pretty strong consumer privacy protections known as HIPAA. It's a federal law, um, that protect, uh, record sharing and kind of the kind of centralized easy notification systems we all might want in theory. Um, so basically, you do have to work with competing medical record systems. And we just don't have um, kind of a a wide system that it takes into account everyone's occupation, age, chronic conditions, etc. And I think most people in normal times would think that's a good thing. You don't want a central database along those lines. So we're just not set up for that.
2: Yeah, I think there are real privacy questions, as you indicate. Michelle wants to know, is the vaccine advice for women who are trying to get pregnant or are pregnant? Do you know, Barbara?
1: Yeah, um, so it is. There were some pregnant women in the uh, initial trials. Um, It is seen to be safe for pregnant women. um, But always, this is something that you should consult with your own doctor about.
2: We've only got a uh, little time left, but I also wanted to ask you about the fact that the California hospitals are really um, begging for relief from red tape, uh, begging state officials. And the hospitals want enough nurses from other wards to or uh, from other units, I should say, to work in the ICU and also uh, discharge uh, patients to other Facilities and nurses, uh, nurses union, at least, is up in arms about this. They say the hospitals already have too much leeway with staffing and they fear cutting back on nursing care. Your thoughts about this?
1: Yeah, this is going to be an ongoing problem. And it was, you know, it was a problem even before the pandemic, because hospitals staff, you know, to the nursing ratio minimum in many cases, and that was for normal times. And now uh, adding this extra burden to already completely exhausted and tapped out healthcare, healthcare workers is really, you know, kind of Problematic. However, the hospitals are in a bind with the huge number of patients they never expected. Um, You know, they're all in surge capacities. You're seeing patients boarded on, you know, hospital gurneys in the hallways and being treated in ambulances. So, this is something that's going to have to be sorted out between, you know, state regulators, the hospitals, and the unions. It's a really, you know, difficult issue that's going to be ongoing, especially as long as we have this surge, which makes it all the more important to, you know, keep doing uh, the things we're all being asked to do. Stay that's at home, we will wear a mask.
2: Uh, yeah, wear a mask indeed. And when we will continue, obviously, to have to pay attention to uh, Bay area av- availability of hospitals uh, lowest yet, we need to speed up the vaccine and make it safe and make it available for as many as we possibly can. Thank you, Barbara fader Ostrov. Good to have you with us. Appreciate it. And she's contributing writer reports on medicine and health policy with Cal Matters West Side Grace Lee, professor of pediatrics and infectious diseases at Stanford. And please stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny.
0: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.